Welcome to The Dream, The Date, and The Broken Bra. I am your host, Stephanie Brownyard. I have an insatiable desire for adventure and knowledge, and with this, I have been on a quest to discover what the purpose of life is and what it all means. In this podcast, we will embark on a journey, the journey of life. With my guest, we will share in stories and celebrate all that life has to offer, from the challenging times to the victories of one's dreams, love, and life experiences. Through authentic conversation and thought-provoking dialogue, it is my hope you will unravel and uncover the magic that makes your life so extraordinary. We all come from different walks of life with different beliefs, but we all have similar desires and needs. Our paths are all so different, but yet we are all so connected. Let's come together to hear each other and to learn from one another and see the beauty in every experience, no matter how difficult or challenging it may be. In the process, we can all heal a little, have some laughs, and perhaps shed a few tears with a whole lot of inspiration. Join me on this exploration to uncover your magic. Are you ready? Hello there and welcome to today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in as I had the pleasure to speak with my boss, president and CEO of Perch, Steve Smith. Steve is not only my boss, but he is a longtime friend and mentor of mine. Over 20-something years ago, Steve and I worked together in a completely different capacity. He was a committed long-term client of mine in my former business as a health coach and trainer. At that time, he was a recently retired 38-year-old executive from the Home Depot Expo Corporations. Over the many years of coaching, we developed quite a trust and bond with one another. Fast forward, we had lost connection when Blair and I moved to New York, and when I came back to California, we got reacquainted as we were both in a transition. He had decided to go back to work as the opportunity presented to him in his current role as president and CEO, and I myself was contemplating on taking a job after being self-employed for over 20 years. I truly feel that that moment was really serendipitous and a clear communication from the universe that our paths had crossed once again, and I soon became Steve's executive assistant, and we started working together in a completely different capacity. In two and a half years, I have witnessed Steve's magic to rally and inspire a team of people to completely turn a company around to thrive. I am grateful Steve saw the potential I had, took me under his wing, and mentored me that I even shifted myself to a new role as an associate merchant. After endless conversations with Steve and hearing how he looks at business, I too started to shift my confidence and started to look at business differently. He fosters people to think outside of the box and challenges them in new ways that motivates them to be inspired at work. Now, I have to say I have no other experience to compare to working in a corporate setting, but I would have to bet that Steve's way to operate his business is quite unique to common corporate environments and likely why it works for me. In today's episode, Steve and I took a deep dive into his work experience, and I was so fascinated at such a young age, he developed a vision that led him to much success. As always, please feel free to reach out to me directly with any feedback, questions, inspirations, or ideas at stephaniebrownyard at gmail.com, 
And as always, please feel free to share the episodes. I greatly appreciate your support and enjoy the episode. Hi, Steve. Hi, Steph. How you doing? I'm still going, wait a second. I'm like, wait a minute, it's your stuff. Like I said, I know I, had to give you, I know I had to give you the executive privilege to record me here. So there you go. Well, I'm actually super excited today because we met, I think like I was counting, we've met over 20 years ago, which is crazy. It, it is. A, it has to be around 20 years ago because I retired at 38 and um, I met you probably a year after I retired. So that's about right. Which is crazy. I was like freshly out of college. So we met... Thanks for making me feel old. No. <laughs> well, that's what I was going to say. We met 20 years ago and I've stayed the same, but. Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, of course. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And we'll get into you being retired at the age of 38 for sure. But we met, I met when I was working as a trainer, I met you and we worked together for a long, long time. And like, I got to know you personally and professionally on that level. And then. I moved away to New York and we got, I got disconnected for, I think I was gone for a few years, but then when I came back, I think it was like probably like five to eight years. Like we, I. It was a while. It was a while. I mean, you know, uh, you know, I'm not the best about that. I got to admit, I'm one of those people that, um, you know, I don't talk to someone for 10 years and then I just all of a sudden decide to reach out and connect with them. I'm not, I'm not very good at the, you know, weekly checking in phone calls. Um, yeah. so I have, I have a lot of friends that I, Sometimes go. Well, I'm not living near them. We just drift apart. I don't know why that is, but it's well, and that's what big. was weird because we literally, like, I saw you like three to four times a week previously, and then we, when I moved away, we kind of just got disconnected, and then when I came back, you know, just different things. And I had been back for like five years, and then I was looking to transition out of my training um, job, and then I also had another business that I was running that I was looking to transition through. And I actually just connected with you on LinkedIn. Not anything, just you popped out of the hole. You were my first LinkedIn connection because, you know, when I years ago though, right? Uh, pretty much. Yeah. I had yeah. nobody else. I had nobody else on it. Cause when you were I retired. Right. Yeah, so well, I, I love the way you keep going retired, <laughs> but you know, I mean, I was retired. <laughs> so I think that qualifies. I mean, I did a lot of other things, but um, technically I was retired from what, what you would say was my field. So, but um, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, what's, what's interesting for me is how you meet people during your life. And, you know, obviously you and I had a very good connection. And when I took this new position at Perch, um, you know, one of the things about me that makes me a little old fashioned is I've always had a personal assistant. Because, you know, I'm kind of pre-computer, you know, I did most of my, um, I was an executive before computers like really were prolific and, you know, email and all that stuff came up when I was doing that. So I never really learned how to do anything. And so that was one of my requirements when I took the job As I said, look, I know that in today's world, people don't do that. But I said, I need somebody that can help me to be more efficient, can keep me organized and everything. And, and then one of my key factors is it has to be someone I actually get along with because, as you know, from doing the job for a period of time, there's a lot of, you know, interaction about all kinds of things. And you get to see me hopefully at my best, but you may also get to see me at times when I'm like, you know, under stress or, you know, that kind of thing. And so it's very important. I trust the person who's my assistant. So I think it's kind of serendipity that you reached out to me right yeah. at that point. 
You were the first person to congratulate me. I know, but it was actually, though, when I saw that, it wasn't necessarily to ask for a job. I just saw you and I was like, oh, my God, like, how are you doing? And then we were going to connect to get coffee. And then you were just starting. I was kind of transitioning, phasing out of what I was doing, like figuring out what I was going to do. And then I was like, wait, do you need an executive assistant? And then well, that's kind of... I actually recall me offering it to you without you even asking because uh, I... Oh, really? I, at that time, I just made the decision I needed to find someone. And then literally, that's why I say it was serendipity. It was like, yeah. maybe the next day you reached out and said, hey, we should catch up. And um, and I you know, just said, what are you doing? And then we lend us into that conversation that you were in a transitional point in your life. And I go, well, that's pretty convenient because um, if you didn't be interested in doing this, um, I mean, I, I mean, I think I presented it the right way. I said, you know, I think you'll learn. I think you'll learn a lot of stuff that you wouldn't think you would learn. And um, it'll give you exposure to a, another skill that you could use. And look what's happened now. It's got you in a whole new career. Yeah. And it's I have to say, you know, I tell you over and over, like how grateful I am to you. And I do think it's serendipi- serendipitous. And then I think what's also funny that I think about how like you meet somebody like 20 years ago and you never know how that's going to like come back later in life. Like, cause I, I never knew, not that I was your boss back in the day, yeah. but you know, yeah. like we had the different role and now it's kind of like our roles kind of like well, changed. I'm, I mean, I don't, I want to get metaphysical or anything. I'm, I am a very big believer that, you know, that you should treat people no matter what with respect and, you know, that everything you do is, you know, a reflection of you. And, um, you know, the good thing for me was when I was in business, I may not necessarily been a warm fuzzy. I mean, you you could sometimes see me when I have to be a little bit more of a school teacher type thing. But there's also the thought that I try to treat people with respect. I don't make everything anything personal. And because of that, you know, I usually am able to reform relationships with people. I have very few bridges I've burned. I mean, there are, I think everybody has regrets in their life where they go, wow, I wish I would have handled that differently. But as a general statement, I think I've treated people pretty well in my career. And when I came back in, and there were people that I, I had really good relationships with that I knew had a lot of skills. I mean, I jokingly say I don't travel with an entourage. Um, and, <laughs> and I don't. I mean, I, I'm not someone that says, here's all my people that come with me when you hire me. It's a but small entourage. I, but I do know people that have certain <laughs> skills, like, you know, Gene yeah. Hodges, our marketing director. Yeah. and. Well, let's actually, can I stop you there? Let's go back and kind of give an outline of like what your role, like who you are, Mm -hmm. your role, like where you started from, you retired at 38. So like what got you there to kind of give some background for people? Okay, well, I won't go back to birth because it will be too far. But um, I've always been kind of somebody that was very, I guess, business oriented. My mom would say this. Um, I, 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 I started a business when I was 12 selling fruits and vegetables door to door because my parents' property happened to have a lot of trees and asparagus and stuff. And so I managed to, you know, save almost $2,000 selling avocados and stuff door to door. That's cute. Um, And it was, I had a cigar box with all my money into it. Um, And then, so I was always kind of focused on, you know, doing something different. How can I make, I mean, I'll be honest with you at that time, how to make money so I can, you know, afford to do things. And, you know, through my, I, I had my first job, I think that at that time was very common. My first job was McDonald's and I, you know, parted ways with McDonald's relatively early. <laughs> I mean, uh, I can honestly say I was terminated for my first job for something, <laughs> something stupid. How old were you? I was 16. 
and I made $2.35 an hour, which sounds oh like crazy gosh. now, but at the time it was, I wanted to get a car. And I'll be honest with you, you can't get a car with $2.35 an hour, even back then. And you so got fired? I, you got fired I from got that? Fired. Um, I had, I found out something that was a good lesson for me to learn that, you know, you could be a good employee, but if you don't get along with your manager and you, I, I, you know, I have a tendency to say things the way they are. And in this case, it kind of get got came back to bite me. But I learned something from it. And obviously, I learned it very young. So I was out of work. And, you know, my career kind of came from the fact that I was out of work and I wanted to get a job. And uh, there was this place in Whittier, California called Sackett and Peters. And it was this home improvement center that was kind of a big home improvement center before they existed. This is way before Home Depot and all the warehouse places. And they kind of had been there for 50 years. It had grown up with the, the city of Whittier. And it was the cool place to work. If you went to school in Whittier, this was the place. You didn't work at fast food. You worked at Sackett's. And it was a really big business. And so I kept going back. Um, I couldn't get anybody to give me an interview. It was very frustrating. Um, uh, the owner's daughter, I didn't know at the time, was the person who gave you the, um, they had a math test and they had you get an application and you could apply once a week. And you had to take a new math test each time. And, and they wanted to know if you could like, you know, do areas and you had to know basic math because back then you had to be able to cut lumber and do things. All right. So and, were you um, not passing the math test? That no, July... I, no, actually what happened was, is I was a little bit of a round, you know, a little round dude. So I was a little bit you know, on the chubby side, like I still am on my whole life pretty much. And so what, what happened was, I think they just assumed that, well, he's, you know, a little overweight. He must be lazy, you know, that stereotype. And um, so I actually was exactly the opposite. I took the test five times because they had five different tests and I got a hundred percent on every test. So she was kind of stunned because no one had ever done that. And she, so she thought this guy's really smart, but you know, why won't they give him an interview? <laughs> and so being the owner's daughter, she told one of the managers, they should interview this guy. He's like really smart. And, you know, anyway, they gave me a job as a courtesy clerk, which is the guy that loads your car with steer manure and, um, you know, gets changed for the cashiers. And basically I'm like a, like a, like a shagging carts, all of that kind of stuff. I helped the customers. So I I started there and within a very short period, I became a lumber salesperson. Um, I worked in the lumber department and then I learned how to do all kinds of different stuff. I learned how to rescreen doors and I reglaze windows, cut pipe, threaded pipe. I mean, I, don't, I know the, most people that know me now would go, really, Steve? But I knew how to do a lot of stuff. Um, I learned to like. Yeah. <laughs> well, you actually always say that you miss that part of it now, like in your role. Well, you, I mean, it was there's something satisfying about getting a load of lumber in and putting it away. Um, you know, they feel like you accomplished something. I mean, sometimes the jobs I've had, you know, relatively the last 20 years, most of them are involved with you know, their, their meetings, their intellectual, and they, and you, you don't go home and say, I put away something today. I, I like, I, I stocked a shelf. It's a, you, you have to get your satisfaction differently. Um, and it's usually a very delayed, like I helped create this business, which takes a long time. So anyway, I, I did this and what happened was I wanted to, um, get ahead. Um, they had an opening come up in the electrical department. Uh, I knew nothing about electricity. <laughs> I was getting ahead. Um, they, said, they said, well, we have, we need a department head in the electrical and lighting. And I went, sure, I could do that. I've always had a lot of confidence. So I went in there to be honest with you. I was really 
I mean, someone one time told me that I could sell things, even though I know nothing I'm talking about, because I just sound confident. Uh, and that's half of it. Like, I, so I, I mean, I will say there's probably some people with some bad electrical things in their house because <laughs> of me. But I did some innovative things. Um, there was a the store had been around for a long time and they had these trailers with old product in them. And I mean, we're talking product that went back to like cords that were made out of material. That's how old because they had been around for 50 years. Anyway, I, I, I did something really innovative. I took everything out of the trailers. It says it all on display. And you I did put what? everything on display. I made, put everything on display that was in the back room. There was a lot of stuff that wasn't even displayed. Over 50 years, they built it all up. So when I did that, big surprise, sales went up. Right. And all of a sudden, my department sales are like double. And, um, and then what ended up happening was I started – taking over other departments, they would what say- What do you think gave you that insight? Like not having any experience, like what do you think gave you that insight to be like, oh, let's put this on display. And I mean, obviously it makes well, sense. I, I guess, I guess I'm, I, I, I think you know this talking to me a lot and working with me. I'm a guy who likes to fix things. I mean, that's maybe the best way to say it. So I said, what's wrong? I need, I need to fix the sales. I need to, and then if I fix the sales, then all everybody in my department will bonus, which will make them work harder for me, which will then get to the next level. And um, so, what was and the how best old are you? To fix how it? old are you at this point? Seventeen. Okay, and you're already thinking in that, and you're already thinking in that yeah. way. Okay. Well, I mean, like I said, I'm kind of a. That's been my my brain's kind of worked that way my whole life. Is how do I fix things? So anyway, what ended up happening was I did this and then they said, well, why don't you take over the housewares department and the paint department because you're here anyway. And so I did that and those departments started to do, I won't go with won't bore you with everything, but it went up. And then, and then what, and then the big moment happened that probably led me on my path, which was I started meeting with the, they had a buyer that was over these departments and he was kind of semi-retired. Mm-hmm. I say that he was getting paid, but he was retired. He's retired. He wasn't really doing much. Yeah. And, and so I started meeting with the vendors and I started like having building ads with them and, you know, buying new product. And then he would assign the, you know, I would do all the work and then he would take credit for it. And I didn't really care because what I wanted was this stuff to drive my sales. So all of those departments started going way up. And, and then what ended up happening was they needed a new manager for the store. So the way the store was structured, there was a, a main manager, a store manager. And then there were these assistant managers or supervisors. So that was a big promotion for me. So you were going to be the, you know, ma- gonna, the main manager or the. No, I was going to be, I'm going to be one of the supervisors, but I'm only 18. Um, and I, so at that time I was up to 18. So I take that job. And when I take that job, of course, I stop doing the other job. So now I'm not doing this buying. I'm not doing this stuff. And those departments started to drop in sales. And I, my job now was to manage the whole store. So I had a lot of operational stuff I had to do because it was a very big store. It was like probably with under roof and outside and everything was probably you know 150,000 feet or more. And so what ended up happening was the the sales started dropping and then the vendors started getting mad 
because they wanted this young kid who looked like he was 12 to come back. Well, and that's what I was wanting to say. Is it hard? Sorry to interrupt, but is it hard like at this point? Because I'm assuming these people are like in their 30s, 40s that you're working with and they're dealing older than that. And they're, and you know, I, I'm being in the industry now, like, yeah, they've been in the industry forever and you're like 18. Is that hard for them to take command from like an 18 year old? Yeah, it was really weird. I never perceived myself. If you look at the pictures of me from back then, I look like I was 12. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was very young looking. I mean, you know my son, and you yeah. know he's twenty five. It's still like he's like. Well, and I have, I have this. You can, imagine, you can imagine me at eighteen. I looked younger than he did. So yeah, what happened was the the vendors disliked the fact that I got stuff done. I mean, you know, I mean, I made decisions, and you know me, I, I make decisions really. I always have made them really fast. Um, I say this is what I think we should do, and we do it. What happened was the vendor started going to the general manager of the company at that time that was the guy who'd been there forever named Ted Somerset, and um, he was in his 70s. And he came to me, and I had I got called up to his office, and they had the offices were above the store, and they used to have windows that actually looked out through two-way glass at the whole building. So he has this big office up there, and and I, I go up there, and it's very intimidating. I mean, I'm 18 years old, and and I get called into his office, and I think I met him like twice and and he goes i want to know were you doing this stuff and he starts talking about these ads and meeting with vendors and all this other stuff and of course i'm i'm thinking i'm in trouble i'm thinking (laughs) i'm gonna get fired because i really wasn't supposed to do this and and i'm thinking wow i just finally got this manager job and now i'm gonna lose and um and i've been a manager now i've been a manager for like five months he goes hey you know we want to know if you'd be willing to do that as a real job we're going to terminate the other guy, because we figured out that he's not the doing guy it. above you, the guy who was the buyer, they're going to get rid of him. And, and then you go, we want to make you the buyer. Now I'm 18 and they're going to make me the buyer for like three, I'd like patio and seasonal housewares, electrical and lighting. Um, I'm taking over all those departments. And, you know, I mean, first of all, at the time it was like, wow, I'm going to make like, you know, they're going to pay me like 20, four thousand dollars a year are you I mean, in school like, full-time at this point too yeah i was going to high school <laughs> and then i and then, but back then it was very different um, when you, it's very different than today. I, I had like one class my second half of my high school oh, okay. year it was one pottery yeah. class <laughs> pottery. That was it. because i had all my i'd done all my stuff already i'd already earned enough to graduate so i had a work permit that allowed me to work 48 hours a week. okay so then I, you know, during this period, I graduated, I should take back, I graduated while I was a manager. And then when, by the time I got the buyer job, I was starting college. So what happened was I went, yeah, I'll, sure, I'll do this. And I, it was really weird. So I go over there and all of a sudden I got an office, you know, I mean, it's like a cubicle, but it's like with high walls. But to me, it was like, wow, I got a desk and a chair. I'm moving and I'm like, you yeah. know, I've got like, Two women that work out there that are kind of not my assistants, but they're like, they do what I tell them to because they work for me. Really yeah. strange. And I remember one of my first meetings, this guy comes in and he's this, you know, uh, guy from uh, Sylvania Bolts. I mean, this is pretty scary. I remember this because that's 40 years ago. And he walks in. I want to make a lot of changes to the Bolt program because I, I now that I've got the power to do it, I can do it much faster. And I remember the meeting, the first meeting, he walked in and he was this guy who was probably in his, about my age I am now, about in mid, mid 50s. And he goes, he starts, I tell him what I want to do. And he, you know, he doesn't think what I want to do is good. And then he goes, listen, son. 
And I, and I don't know what it was, but somehow that just went like chalkboard. And I went, first of all, I'm not your son. <laughs> and I'm pretty darn happy I'm not. And then I went, then I went down and said, this is the way it's going to work. And, you know, after that, I mean, I, I knew I had to establish the fact that I was, I mean, I really was the boss. I actually got something into my head. Is this what got you fired from McDonald's? This <laughs> kind, of, kind of that, yeah, except I made the mistake of not really being, uh, I mean, like I told, yeah, so I won't get into it. It's like, like, so what ended up happening was I did really well. Um, I My departments did really well. And the company at the time was going through a major remodeling. Um, they were trying to update the store. It hadn't been updated in like 25 years. And they did a lot. They'd spent a lot of money. Anyway, the reason I bring that up is that fast forward like a year. Now I'm like almost 20. I get told, hey, we're going to go up to see our Bakersfield store because we had another store in Bakersfield. We had a warehouse. In I mean, it was a pretty big company. And they go, hey, we're going up to the to Bakersfield. Come with us. And that, and that was really unusual because normally we plan those trips way out in advance because it's not exactly a short drive. You go up and you stay overnight. You didn't just go up there for the day. And the controller and the general manager have me go out and we get in their car and then I'm in the back seat there in the front. And this is no lie. This is exactly what happened. We're actually on the grapevine and they pull over the side of the road, which is really weird. And they look over the back, they look over the back seat and they go, we need to let you know something. When we get to Bakersfield, we have to tell them something. And I go, what? They go, we have some good news and some bad news for you. The good news is we're going to promote you to merchandise manager, which basically meant I was going to take over all the buying for all the departments. They're going to report to me for both for and both locations, like, for everything, all buying. So all buyers would work for me that bought whatever category: garden, plumbing, whatever. And then, and I was twenty, and they go, and the, but the bad news is we're filing Chapter Eleven on Monday morning at eight a.m. It's Friday, right? So I'm like, so I don't really, to be honest with you, understand this. I mean, I know a little bit about bankruptcy, but not enough to be, I don't really understand what that means. And basically what happened, they'd gotten overextended. They couldn't make the payments on their line of credit. And, and long story short, they had to file bankruptcy reorganization. So we went up to Bakersfield and we told them that, and we said, we're in a reorganization. And then we, you know, immediately we had to, you know, there were some cuts that were made. Anyway, my first job as the boss was to reorganize a company going through bankruptcy. And part of the reason they, part of the reason they wanted me in that job was because I had no baggage because I was too young to have baggage. And then on top of that, they felt that I had the gift of gab, as you know, and I could talk the vendors back in to coming back into business with that. I had a plan to reorganize the company and I did. So we came through the bankruptcy. Um, I, I won't, there was a lot of things I did that were like, how do you like go to do the, I mean, even just going back and thinking like, cause now my role is in merchandising and it's like, how did you even know, like you're 16 going in and knowing that these things are going to work. And were you like even passionate about like home remodeling? Like I'm, I'm passionate. I've always been passionate. I don't know what it is. I, for some reason, I've always been able to put myself in those customer's shoes and it doesn't matter whether I'm you know, that demographic or not, I've always been able to think like a customer and I look at everything through a customer's eyes. And I don't know if that means I'm a born retailer um, or a born merchant. I, I, it was like I say, if I was buying patio furniture, 
what would get me excited and why, how would I react to this and how would I react to that and what, what ad would work. And, and for some reason, my brain's always worked that way. And I mean, you know, this from working with me, I sometimes have, I sometimes have these ideas and things where sometimes people go, why, where did he come from on this? Um, and most of it just, it comes from that. It's really fast too. Like in being in meetings with you, it's like, You'll get an idea and you're like, where the hell did that just come from? It does blow me away a little bit. Well, some of it, some of it actually, as you got to remember, I, I mean, I'm, I'm like Methuselah. I've been around <laughs> forever and I think I've made every mistake. Right. And I mean, a lot of situations are repetitive in business. Um, that doesn't mean that I, I haven't come up with a lot of new stuff, but a lot of times most, there's very few things you come up with that are completely new. Normally it's taking something and then adapting it to a new situation and then also, I'm a risk taker. I mean, you know me. I, I mean, I'm a, I'm, you know, I mean, I like to. I mean, I like to gamble sometimes. Um, I like to make educated risks. And so, when I do things, I'm kind of like, what's the payoff on do, on being a little bit more? I'm not risk adverse. It doesn't mean I make things reckless decisions, but I am. I, I'm a big believer in there's a cost to waiting. And I also have a thought process. But what's the real downside if I'm wrong, as opposed to what's the upside if I'm right? And I think that goes, that that is in my head. That's all in my, you know, when I'm doing things, that's in my head, moving around. Um, it may just move a little faster in my head than other people's. But And then do you think it's because of your experience that you can kind of foresee like the things that could go wrong and go right? Like, is it the experience? You know, I, I think it's my experience. I think my I don't want to say this the wrong way because it's not, I, mean, my, I think my brain works a little strange. It just. You've always said that. Filed, <laughs> filed a certain way. Yeah. Um, I don't really know how to describe it, but um, I'm able to take in a lot of data and kind of make leaps. And I mean, I, I, I do it a lot of math in my head uh, pretty easy. So that helps me. So I can like figure things out. But yeah, I mean, I mean, a lot of it's experience based. Yeah. I mean, that's basically it. When you, I mean, I've made a lot of mistakes. I don't want to give you any pressure that everything I do comes out right. Cause this is not the case. I just try to make sure that my, the mistakes I do don't cause really terrible things to happen. So going back, you're now going into this new role, you're downsizing and. Well, no, I'm actually, I'm actually increasing. I actually, I actually was very aggressive, which is the same thing you'll know from working with me now. I tend to find, I tend to prefer to attack as opposed to retreat. So I immediately said, how can I drive more profitable sales that will create more money? One of the biggest things I did that was, that saved the company was I, we, I made the decision to close our Bakersfield store, which was very difficult for the owners because they got money from it in rent and other things. So they didn't, it was a bad business though. It was, it was taking the profit from their, the main location of Whittier and diluting it. And so I made the decision to close that location down, which was a separate corporation. And then I liquidated it as the, as part of the, as the owner. And then, but I bought the inventory as a debtor and I bought it at a discount. I offered more than anybody else would pay for it, but I bought it. And the bankruptcy judge agreed to my, my plan. And that allowed me to basically buy like an entire store's worth of inventory, all the stuff I wanted at like 20 cents on the dollar, which immediately gave us a huge cash infusion and allowed us to come out of the chapter 11 
for the main location much stronger. And it also paid off the people on the other one because we were the biggest debtor of the other location anyway. But we didn't hurt a lot of people. I mean, I my goal was not to dupe people. It was to, to make sure I brought the company out of the chapter and uh, and kept all those people employed because there were hundreds of people working for me. So. And not to skip ahead because we'll get to this too, but like in our current company working at Perch, you did kind of a similar thing during COVID when everything was like kind of shutting down, you saw it as an opportunity to kind of like trudge forward, which I thought was really exciting. And it's been really exciting working in that. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I think, I think, I think I've always been that way to a certain extent that I prefer to attack. It's just, to me, it's easier to attack than it is to retreat. Um, if you could do it intelligently. Uh, but also, I mean, when I work, I worked for Home Depot, as you know, for a while, and that also taught me a lot about yeah, do you want to go into the, talking about? So you, yeah. So I mean, I, I mean, I, I'll, I'll fast, I'll fast forward here. So basically, what happens? I, I end up reorganizing the company. I end up taking on a higher position. I became general manager of the whole company. So all the operate, everything reported to me, and then I worked directly for the owners. At a certain point, there was nowhere else for me to go. I'm not part of the family, and there was limited opportunity for me to continue to. And go. are you going so to college at this point, or is college done? I was. I was still going to college. I actually dropped out. You know, I had a, I had a lot of responsibilities at that time. I was running the company. Um, I also was looking after my grandfather who had, my grandmother had passed away. So I was living with him. And then I also had, you know, this full-time job, which was a big job. So I made the decision to drop out of school. I was going to school to be a manager and I kind of felt like I was already doing kind of it. Doing yeah. what I was <laughs> I'm like, I feel before. like you got an MBA just doing that. <laughs> yeah, kind of. But, you know, at the same time, you know, it, it can hurt you in the future, but it, it, it didn't, but it did. I'll talk about that a little bit later on. So what, what ended up happening was I decided I want to go from working from a small company to a big company. And during this time period, Home Depot and Home Base and all these other warehouse stores had come into being. And Home Depot had just opened up on the West Coast about, about two years previously. I did a lot of uh, analysis and I, I told people I was, was looking to leave. And I had a good reputation. I had quite a few offers. I had offers just about to every company. And I, uh, I really wanted Home Depot because I, I felt like Home Depot was better. Now, this time it wasn't that wasn't the case. I mean, it was like, they were like one of the people, but I just felt it was better. It had a better feel. The store felt better to me. And I know that sounds weird. No, I get it. Like, as opposed to like Lowe's or going like the vibe. Yeah, or... Well, Lowe's was, oh, okay. Lowe's didn't even okay. exist. I mean, they were like a little tiny company in the Carolinas. At this point, it was home base. It was Builders Square. It was Builders and Boring. These are all people that don't exist anymore because Home Depot basically won. So I was hired to be the furniture buyer for Home Depot for the West Coast. They they bought their their stuff was bought regionally and had a buying office in Fullerton. So I took this job because I obviously had experience with seasonal furniture and knockdown furniture and so on. At that time, Home Depot sold knockdown furniture, you know, the bookcases, the desks, the you like IKEA stuff. Um, and then while I was in the process of giving my notice, they decided to get out of the business. <laughs> so they had hired me to do a job that no longer existed. Home Depot did? Um, yes. And so I was, I was quite upset by that because now they're saying, well, we don't have a job for you, but we're still going to hire you. And we're still going to pay you the same amount because you don't make any money. <laughs> um, that's what they told me. Uh, but we're going to put you in a store and I'm, as an assistant manager. And I'm like, I felt, I mean, to me, it was like, I feel like I'm going back 
you know, seven years backwards and I'm not really happy about this. And I turned down some other really good offers and now I'm thinking about resurrecting them. And I got a phone call. I was really unhappy with Home Depot. I'll be honest with you. I was, I thought they jerked me around a lot. And at the time I took it very personally. Um, so I got a phone call saying that this guy named Bill Hamlin wanted to interview me. From I wasn't going to go. From Home Depot? Um, it he was, was from Home Depot. And then I told, mentioned to one of my friends that was a rep, I said, hey, he goes, oh my God, you got to go meet this guy. He is the president of the Western half of Home Depot. He's like number three in the company. You know, you can't turn down a meeting with him. You know, and I'm, and I'm like, you know, you know me. I'm like, yeah, I can. Um, so <laughs> I, you know, he wanted to meet me on a Saturday and I was like kind of fed up. And I actually, to be honest, I was playing golf with some friends. And I, I said, well, I'm playing golf with some friends. And they go, he goes, well, you got to do this. So, if, you know, I guess, thank God the guy talked me into it. I showed up, of course, I was dressed in slacks and a dress shirt, even though everybody told me they're very casual, I just felt that was professional. So I showed up on a Saturday the whole office is shut. His assistant comes out and like, it looks like they're, the building is dark and she pops the door open. There's no cell phones that time. I'm just banging on the door. He leads me into the back into this, you know, catacomb, so to speak. It was this old thing that built uh, airplane factory in Fullerton. So we go in the back and he has me, he has me sit in his office while he's making these phone calls. And after he finishes the phone calls, finally he sits down. And the reason he wants to talk to me is the guy who was the head merchant for all of Home Depot at that time was named Jim Inglis. And he was from this same company in Whittier that I worked for. He had been there 15 years before me. He held the same job I oh, did as cool. head of merchant. Okay. So he was curious as to why, how, why would this, why did this one company produce so many people in the industry? Cause there was a lot of people that came from Sackets. So anyway, um, I talked to him. We ended up really, he was a very creative guy, very intelligent. I mean, I really enjoyed talking to him and he decided, he goes, listen, I really want you to, to come on the board. I think you, I think we can really use you. And, you know, this will just, well, I mean, I know you want to be in merchandising, which is buying. Let's get you in here. I think there's this new thing we're thinking of doing. It's called this, we're going to call it expo. There was just like the name they come up with at the time. And it's going to be the store that we're going to use to experiment with decorative products and then teach Home Depot how to sell them. Cause that time Home Depot was very dirty. It was like, you know, tools and lumber and cement and, you know, it wasn't window blinds and, you know, they had paint, but not decorative stuff. It was very, it was very ooga ooga, you know? Um, and so the idea was that how can we, how can we sell these more decorative home improvement products in the same environment without losing what they had, which was a really good contractor business and what was driving this. So I was put into the Fullerton store, which was one of the busiest stores in the company at the time. It was like a 60 plus million dollar store, which I mean, back then, I mean, a high volume home improvement store on the West Coast did like four. I still had I had to go in and learn Home Depot. So they put me in the assistant manager training program. And then, and then I was assigned as an extra manager on the Fullerton's payroll, which I'm sure they were thrilled by. Um, and they just were kind of left me there. And the idea was I'm, I'm next to the buying office. So when I need to do something for the expo stores, I can. But my payroll is being picked up by the store because they didn't have a position to give me in the buying office. So 
I worked full time in the in the store, which it full time in a system manager at Home Depot at that time was about at least 80 hours a week. And then I also did the other job. So I was working pretty much all the time. And, um, you know, I didn't have any children. I was I was recently married. I'd been married for about probably three or four months at this point. And how old are you at this time now? 25. And uh, so what ends up happening, you know, the thought process was the Home Depot merchants were going to try the, they were going to have these ideas and they were going to bring them, they were going to meet with the vendors, decide what they wanted, and then they would give it to me. And then I would figure out how to display it. <laughs> right. You're the master well, that's not the way it uh-huh. That's not the way it worked. Mm-hmm. They basically had no time. They were very busy. They're opening up a store like a week and they could care less about this weird laboratory store in San Diego. And the only reason it's in San Diego is because they had an empty lot that they owned that they bought so that one of their competitors couldn't get near the highest volume store in the company at that time, which was the one on Balboa Avenue. Um, so, and you're talking about the, ex- was- the expo store that was in Encinitas? No, the Encinitas came way after. This was a store down off of Convoy in 163. And so the idea was that we would, so we we're supposed to build this store. So it had a very large budget. It was very different. Um, and basically what happened, I ended up doing most of the buying for every department because no one was doing anything. And so I, I started off by doing my departments, which were lighting, electrical, the garden department. And then I also, for some reason, got um, was involved in picture framing and art. That's crazy. And then you what did all those was, departments? Yeah, but then I also took over kitchen and bath and appliances and cabinets and pretty much in hardware. The only department I didn't buy was I didn't buy tile and I didn't buy millwork, even though I did set up the deal with Anderson. And, you know, but but there was a guy working with me. But, you know, I, I thought that I was like, oh, my God, look what I did. It was more like someone had. No, I just I guess because now me doing merchandising and I'm doing bath and plumbing and hardware. It's like, oh, my God, like even that alone just seems. No, I, I will say like that a lot. sometimes. Sometimes I don't really understand how it came to be because I, I, I mean, we did have probably twice as many vendors as we have today. And I pretty much, I met with all of them and I did the mix. I picked all the product and did the create sheets even. You actually had to write the, the description up for every SKU. Oh, I think I remember you telling me that. Yeah. Yeah. And then you, and then you, once you entered all that down, then you would give it to this person, they would input it. But I would literally sit there with stacks and stacks and stacks of these create sheets and then I would put the amount I wanted of each item and set the margin. <laughs> oh my gosh. I said, I set all the prices. Um, you know, I mean, obviously I use a lot of the vendors to help me, um, which is what I learned how to do that was to use, put that to work for me. So we, anyway, what hit long story short, we flash forward here. Um, you know, I was also the manager of a couple of the departments as the operational manager, as well as the buyer. So the plumbing in a kitchen and bath, was my department as well as patio and seasonal and hardware. I was the manager, which meant I had to hire the staff. So I had to hire 37 people to work for me while I was doing all this. So anyway, it was, it was a very trying time. It was very, very difficult time for my wife and myself too, because I was pretty much working 24 hours a day. And, um, you know, I moved and I newly married, I moved her down to San Diego you know, and she wasn't real thrilled with this lifestyle. Um, but we, you know, obviously she, persevered with me but what ended up happening was you know we opened the we we got open and the expo got open I, I, I designed this, there was no plan there was no store planning 
at that time, Home Depot had racks. And you're talking about the expo opened at this time. Yeah, yeah the expo. So the expo, expo was like weird. We had a showroom and then we had this warehouse. So two thirds of the store was warehouse and one third was the showroom. Okay. So I designed pretty much everything. And so can so you, it was all my so, I mean, I know, so you're saying like Home Depot is more like the con the contractor and people go and then the expo was more like the design center where customers would go to kind of see like the lifestyle piece of it or see the. Well, no, it was like, we were just literally selling products that home Depot didn't sell. Like, it was like home Depot sold faucets, but they basically sold replacement faucets. So it was more decorative. They didn't, it was not a decorative category. It was like here, my my Delta faucet went out. Here's the Delta. Expos were around. Like I definitely, was around where I, I never went into an expo just because I didn't have a home at that time, but I do remember them. I just don't. Well, there were 50, over 50 stores. So, you know, when I, so the first one was in San Diego, we opened it up and pretty much overnight we figured out we'd done something because the store was doing massive numbers in, uh, in Bath in particular. And, there just was these, you know, we were selling like the volume of like six to 10 Home Depots and faucets. And, you know, it wasn't like Home Depot wasn't selling you faucets. These were numbers were incredible. And a lot of it, I did a lot of stuff that at the time was considered different. But to be honest with you, a lot of what I did, I just, I just went and looked at stuff in Europe. I took a look and I saw stuff that was in showrooms. Like they didn't, you didn't let people go to showrooms back then. You had to have a designer or builder take you in there. And I went in there and looked at what they did and said, I could do this better. And I took what they did and then I enhanced it. So it's not like I just came up with this stuff in a vacuum. And anyway, we opened up a store. We did massive numbers. Uh, the store was supposed, we opened up doing like, you know, in the six, 700,000 a week. And we weren't selling, you know, any of the stuff that drove the volume in a Home Depot. And all the departments that didn't work at Expo were the ones that were the most like Home Depot. So anything that was like, like we sold molding and nobody cared. Um, we sold paint. Right. So nobody it wasn't cared. conflicting. Like, no, I mean, so our business was almost a hundred percent. We had no effect on a store that was two miles down the street. So pretty much right off the bat, Home Depot went, this is something new. What is this? And so they made the decision to, to make it a separate entity pretty quick. And they promoted me into a new job that didn't exist in Home Depot. It was the general manager of Expo. And basically what that meant was I ran the store operationally, but I also was in charge of all the buying and all the marketing. I was in charge of everything. And that was the way they wanted it structured because they felt that, you know, I could continue to develop this. And then I was allowed to hire another two people to actually help me with the buying now instead of just doing it all myself, which helped us. Yeah. So you're, you know. You're basically at this point the only person, and you had hired. You said like 38 people to get this. Well, I had salespeople in my departments, and then I had department heads, and there was there were nine assistant managers. Every the way that's the way a depot. We were structured just like a Home Depot, and the store manager and I didn't get along. He didn't like me because I wasn't depot enough for him, and also didn't like the fact that I did I kept leaving to go on trade shows and stuff because I was also the buyer. And again, you're probably dealing with all older people, right? No, well, he, at this point, yeah, I'm I'm still younger than most everybody, but people people had a very young there's a lot of young managers. Anyway, I took this job and I became at like 27 at by this point 2 years it's 27 and I took over as general manager. 
So I started designing the store in Atlanta that was going to be the new prototype. And this, and this, so the first store had orange racking in it. Very different. You wouldn't even recognize that those people that ended up going to an expo. It looked almost like a Home Depot. I was joked, Home Depot with a dress on it. It was like very, you know, kind of looks like the way Home Depot does today. I mean, it was, it would, you know, that's kind of what it would look like. So then what ended up happening was I opened up this new one in Atlanta and we had two other sites in Long Island and in Dallas. The one in Atlanta opened up in 1994 and the Dallas and the, and the Long Island one opened up in 95. Well, the problem was we were doing a lot of volume, but not making money. And the, the, my, the guy who I worked for at that time had a very set thought process of what he thought Expo should be. I had a different thought process, but I worked for him. He wanted it to be much more of a, like a hyper market, like Germany, where, you know, you sell everything and you like do all these services for customers. I thought we should be a project business where we helped people with major remodeling and we help people to do big decorative projects. Problem is those two businesses fight against each other. So the more traffic you get, the better for this, but it's bad for this. So he ended up leaving the company. He got pushed out. He was in a, I won't go into sides thing. And when he left, they decided to promote me to uh, vice president of merchandising. So I was 28, became an officer at Home Depot, which was a really big deal at that time. And I put a guy in that was uh, named Brian Scott, who was a, a lot guy in the first store. He's like a guy who shagged carts in the first Home Depot. Been in Home Depot and had gone up, managed stores and district manager and VP of ops. And anyway, they made him president of Expo. So I worked for him. And that was really good because it gave us a lot of credibility inside of Home Depot because Bryant was really well thought of. And no one knew who I was. So anyway, we went along um, the, we basically made the decision to re-engineer Expo. And in 1997, I went to Arthur Blank in 1995 and said I had a different idea. He liked my idea. My idea. And was, who's Arthur Blank for people? He's one of the founders of one of the founders of Home Depot. He was the CEO of Home Depot. And he was a very big supporter of Expo. And he said, go build it. And I'm like, okay. And go build this new store. So we have four stores that are doing volume. He says, go build this new one. And I went down to, he says, I'm going to do it down in Florida. That was, we had a a place. And his only criteria was I had to be there every week. I thought he was kidding, but he was dead serious. So every week for a year and a half, I flew to Florida. And we built this store that was much more of a low traffic consultative sale, much more like a Ferguson or a like that kind of off the beaten path, not not at main and main for retail. And um, it, it made money. So we made the decision to do another location uh, with that, with what we learned from there that was kind of between the two. We opened that up in Boynton Beach in 1997. And that pretty much became the model that we rolled across the United States. And we had them in like 26 states. And, you know, we were rolling along and uh, everything was kind of good. And, you know, we had our ups and downs. I won't bore you with all that. But by that point, I was a senior vice president from the. And how old are you at that point now? I think I became a senior VP when I was like 32. And around there, I don't really remember exactly. No, it's still pretty phenomenal um, because that role, you're like 32. And, and like, what is that equivalent to, to somebody like? 
Well, a senior VP at Home Depot was a pretty big job. I mean, basically, I meant you had officers working for you. So you had VPs working for you and, and you had a lot more power. So basically, I had the same job. My job didn't really change. I just had more people working for me. But my responsibility was kind of, it just kept growing. I, I always jokingly say that every day, Expo was the biggest company I'd ever managed because it kept getting bigger. So, you know, we went from one store to when I left, there were like 34 locations. I built them. The store planning worked for me, marketing, design, uh, and all the merchants. So anyway, anyway, I love my job. And then Home Depot made the decision to change CEOs. Uh, the board made a decision that they felt they needed to make a change. And they brought in a new guy from General Electric who had very different ideas. And I won't get into a lot of that, but basically, I mean, I just didn't really like my job anymore. And I'd never really sold any Home Depot stock. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, fast forward here, I've got a five-year-old son at this point. So you, so in that time from you opened the expos, you said it was 50 stores that you had opened in the matter of from. Well, we opened 34 before I left. So basically what happened was I didn't mesh with the new General Electric culture. I'm a very big believer in culture and there, and they, there was a very strong culture with Bernie and Arthur that I really loved, which was they, you know, taking care of your employees, taking care of your customers, you know, providing value and, and giving people a career. While some of those things might've been parroted, I didn't believe they were really the beliefs of the company anymore. And so, you know, my wife, she kind of gave me that Solomon talk and she said, you know, you don't even like your job anymore. Why are you doing it? And I'd become very unempowered. We became very bureaucratic. Uh, support functions became very controlling of the business, you know, HR, training, legal, everything just became like, like a quagmire. And I don't work well with that. I don't want to spend three months trying to come up with a decision that's the right decision. Well, and, and it's funny because now going and just kind of moving through this, because now you're the president and CEO of Perch, which were like a home you want to share like what perch well yeah so so basically i'm one of those really weird people i joke i did retire i, I moved my wife back to san diego and i just sequested out that's what i always say i just went boom pop the bullet yeah so from 38 to when you came back you yes yeah, so i disappeared i mean i did do some stuff but i told my wife i wouldn't leave san diego until my son was out of high school and so basically what ended up happening was i was here um i did some other stuff for a while there i was involved in Ruby Tuesday, I was CEO of a group that was going to open up a bunch of restaurants. You had out the LA market. And of course, the economy tanked. And that that's all. Everybody knows that story. And then I was going to take a job with another company that had expressed interest to in me at uh, Florida Decor. What, so what had but, you want to go back and like, so you retired at 38? Well, I, everybody else. I was a retiree and I lost a lot of my net worth when the uh, market collapsed in the way and you and so I, and I, knowing your lifestyle because I met you when you were retired at this point <laughs> he lived a very fun and very fruitful life because your philosophy yes, on that like let's share that philosophy because I actually think it's it's actually a very admirable philosophy well I believe part of my thought process was I'm going to retire at 38 when I'm young enough to really enjoy it and then I'll be more mellow when I get older but I believe that you know, I want to enjoy life. I want to, uh, you know, share what I, what I do and share it with my friends and life's too short. You know, you never know. And, and I don't want to have regrets that I didn't do that. I've traveled all over the world. 
I've done many, I mean, sometimes it's, it even stuns me how many different things I've it done. It stuns me because you're like probably like for your position and what you've done is you're probably, as we laugh, like your ego, but you're probably one of like the most humble people that I know too. And very like, like yes, you like the nice stuff and doing extravagant things, but you're also very like generous and like humble, which I know you don't always want people to know that side of you, but I do. <laughs> well, look, I mean, here, here, I got a piece of advice. So I, so this is actually a good tie into what ended up happening. So now fast forward, my son's out of high school. I, I told my wife, look, I, I need to, I think I need to do something before I'm too old that anybody want me. And if I want to do it, if I want to make it in my field, I'm worth a lot more if I can do something in my field. And and that means that means we're going to have to leave San Diego because there's no retail organizations based on San Diego, at, at least maybe Petco and a couple ones. So I made the decision to do that. And then this thing kind of just fell into my thing. I never really heard about Perch. It tells you how much I had separated because a lot of it has a lot of similarities to Expo. And the private equity people that had it were looking for somebody to come in and help said it right. Um, and I had a good team. There was a good people at Perch. There was good leaders that were still there that some of the other ones were gone. I mean, it was, it was something that really ignited my old passion again. So, you know, when I took this job, there was a, a friend of mine that was worked for Bain Capital. And he, he basically told me that, you know, Steve, I, he, cause he worked for me at one time. He said, he goes, you know, you're one of my best bosses I ever had. I learned you, you're really good about training and stuff. And I thought, you know, I'm, I get awkward about that. So, and he said, you ran really well down. He goes, people, like, you're really good with the truth and everything. He goes, you are the worst when it comes to managing up. You just have a tendency to tell everybody the emperor has no clothes. Um, you just are very blunt with people that are your bosses. And he goes, you've always gotten results, so people cut you slack. But you've got to understand that when you work with private equity, you may need to, like, temper your way of talking to people. So that was interesting what you said there because, you know, that's one of the things that, you know, I'm actually more comfortable. You know, I, I find – I don't know what it is. I just always have been that way. So fast forward, I come into Perch. I look at it. Um, you know, well, when I got the, here, there was – Yeah, issues. I was going to say, what was the state of Perch that was – like, what – I mean, there's obviously we had op- they had opened up some stores in some other markets and it had not worked the way they would have liked. It had overended too quickly. They had take the, the company takes a lot of infrastructure to run correctly and they duplicated it, which made it very non-profitable. So they had made the decision before I got here to retract back to California, which was the profitable part. And when I came in, that had already been done and they wanted the company to get back to where it needed to be to become more profitable and then to expand that my plan was to expand it the right way. So we had done a lot of work on that and I won't go into a ton of details, but basically we really worked hard on our bath business. We worked hard on changing some of the philosophies about selling on price, which I don't believe in. Um, And, you know, taking the really good parts that we had and building on them. And that's what we did. And so now we're, you know, we're at least a couple times larger as a company than we were. And we had, before COVID, we had already made a lot of really positive changes that had really built the company into a much better position to be able to weather this. And, you know, when COVID started, obviously a lot of us in the world did not know what was going on. We didn't know, is this going to be, you know, what is it going to be? Nobody knew. And, 
my feeling was that in, in times of turmoil, it's the best time to take market share. It's also the best time to, you know, be aggressive and, you know, and, and drive forward, not retract. So that was the decision that we made. And we were out there very quickly. Our, our business was very well set up to work remotely. We did our own installation, which gave us a lot of control over how we interact with customers so we could do it safely for our employees and safely for them. We also had a very low traffic business model, consultative sales, so we, we could work by appointments. So there's a lot of things that helped us to be successful, as well as obviously when customers all got in their own homes, they went, oh, God, my dishwasher stopped working it because I'm using it 10 times a week. And we were in a position to help with that. And so we very quickly took on more and more business. Um, it started growing. But I and, think um, I know at the start of COVID, it was like, we're big enough to make an impact, but yet we're small enough to be able to move and change where, you know, you talked about like Home Depot, where the bureaucracy that they can't adapt as quickly. Well, it's not, it's not, even, it's not even bureaucracy. It's more like just the fact that larger companies, it's harder to make quick decisions in, in this kind of environment. They have a lot of resources to react to it. And they have a lot of cash, which is a really good thing. But we were able to be more nimble and we could make decisions and then we could move into them really quickly. Where, I mean, obviously, when you're, a, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars or tens of billions, you know, you have to, things move more it's glacially. It's like a big tank. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. It's like, you know, I, I don't use, a, I mean, everybody always goes the big super tanker as opposed to the speedboat. But, you know, we're big enough that we have buying power. But we're not so big that we can't react, and we and we made a lot of strategic decisions. I'm I don't really want no, to go to, into I, other that's not depth. what this is even about. So no, no. and I probably bore everybody to death anyway. But the good news is that a lot of stuff we've done has been very good and it's worked out well. I mean, obviously you've been involved a lot in the plumbing and the hardware piece as we develop that and grow in that business, and that's important because it's a little bit of a higher margin business, which helps us to have a better mix. And I believe that COVID has changed the way people look at their purchasing. I believe that the consumer looks at their home differently. I think everybody valued their home. But after COVID, I think people value it even more. After they, it's their, it's their, their, their sanctuary and they want to be able to enjoy it more. And so they want, to, they want to remodel. They want to make it better. They want to have an outdoor entertainment area. They want to have a home spa. They want to have a kitchen that's better. So, you know, it's one thing to have an oven that you kind of like if you use it twice a week, but when you use it for every meal, you figure out all the things you don't like. And that's why we've been so we've done a lot of business and I don't see that changing. I, I think that there, there's certain things that changed from things like September 11th that, you know, when world war two happened, the whole American economy changed from things that happened during that. And I think some of this, some of the changes here are, are not going to go away. I think people do value their homes differently. And I think there's going to be a lot like the whole outdoor business, I think, is going to be huge for a long time to come. And we're trying to make sure that we take full advantage of that and grow the right way, the profitable way. And that's what we've been doing. So we've been growing. Uh, we, One of the things I'm probably the most proud of is that everybody, we know we have a lot of people we kept employed during this period. And we've added like almost 200 new employees. And, you know, they're, and they're good jobs. They're good jobs. And I want people to be able to have careers. And I want to take the culture that I learned from working for Bernie Arthur and use it in a different way in our environment, you know, put our spin on it. And, but it, it all comes down to the same thing. You treat people with respect, 
you give them opportunity, you create a, a environment that, that fosters creativity and drive, and the financial results come. If you, if you create that environment, good things happen. And, you know, you have to have business, business controls. It's not like we're like La La Land. I think if you do that, I know for me, it was a very, I mean, I really love that environment. It made me want to do really good for the company when I worked at Home Depot. I believe that's what's happening with us. I think our employees value the Perch family and the, the, the company, and they want it to be successful because they know they're going to be successful and they're valued. And, and I think that term, I mean, I truly mean it. I value, I know that this is not Steve Smith's achievement. I mean, I may be, I may be part of it, but there's a lot of people that are involved in making this happen. And, and they all have different pieces that made it work. I, and I always get that from you. And, you know, we talked about, like, I was self-employed. Like, I came out of college working for myself for 20 years. So going and taking a job, I was very nervous because, I one, I had my own structure going on. I had my own schedule. I had a lot of flexibility. And so going and thinking and working in an office and having set hours, um, it was actually what kept me away from ever wanting a job, you know, and, and then I'm like, gosh, I've, you know, I'm proud that I was self-employed for 20 years. And what actually had me want to go take a job was to be a part of a team and to be on something that I could grow bigger than myself. So I, and I do see that in, you know, starting as your executive assistant and working very closely with you, I'm forever grateful to you because I think you knew that I just was like so hungry to learn business and learn. And I just like, I always just wanted to learn how like your mind thinks and you seeing how like you actually really empower your people to make choices, to make decisions and to empower them in why they're doing it. And there is like such a really great culture that people just work their asses off. And I know like specifically in the last two and a half years, our business, you know, adapting and changing every day with all the different changes of COVID that we had to do, and then growing at the same time, just doing the changes of growth. I think that this has been a very challenging environment to work in and also to manage in. And I think you got to be sensitive to the effects that this is having on people. And you know, I, I jokingly said, I go, I don't, I don't, I'm not very good about the. I mean, I'm the kind of guy that if there's a fire in a building, I, I'm not the one who's going to be running around yelling. I'm going to be like, okay, let's all head to the exit. I'm not <laughs> sure what the yelling does for it. Um, and that doesn't mean I don't feel about it. I really do. But I, I just think that's my job. My job, my job changed. My job changed when COVID hit from, you know, making Perch more and more successful to making sure there was a Perch coming Because we really didn't know. I mean, I want to make sure there was a company. And then obviously that changed relatively quickly where I said, oh, this is something we can actually use uh, to drive more business because this is there's a need for the, what we're doing. And I'm very excited. I mean, I, I, I see a lot of opportunity for people that work for us to grow. And, and to be honest with you, I, there was a time where I didn't, I wasn't really in to training and I wasn't, I mean, I just didn't see the value in it when I worked for Home Depot and I was kind of forced to do it. And then over time, I learned that the most satisfying thing to me was watching someone that you helped, you know, become like something, you know, like you go like, I'm proud of all the people I've trained and that have worked out in the industry and they've gone on to bigger and better things. And, and, you know, then that's not because, you know, I like took them and 
molded him into this shape and then like roboted him off because in some ways maybe I helped him, you know, maybe I gave him a nudge or taught him something. And that's a lot more lasting than, you know, deciding to put up a display. Um, you know, I mean, I mean, look at me, I, I created or helped create Expo. Um, it became a huge company, you know, billions of, of, of sales and it went away, you know, and um, I'm much more proud of the fact that there's all these people I, that I helped develop careers and that are still in the industry. They're everywhere. But it's cute because right and when you came ba- when you came back, like people are like, you hired me or you, you know, like you still get stories yeah. of people like you trained and developed. And- yeah, it is weird. It is weird because, you know, you don't think about the fact that I was so young that, you know, I was gone for so long, but I'm still alive, so to speak. It's kind of weird because I'm because I started so young, you know, I can still be, it's like, you know, it's, it's like, I'm still, you know, people come to me and go like, oh yeah, you, you know, you hired me 27 yeah. years ago. <laughs> and it's, it's kind of weird where you go like, oh, really? Am I really that old? Because yeah, I don't feel that way, but, um, but it is the industry, you know, there's a lot of things, you know, I mean, I mean, there's, there's challenges, obviously there's a lot of challenges right now. And, um, you know, I think I'm better suited to be a CEO today than I was <clears throat> in my younger years. I might have had to a certain extent more power when I was younger because just the company size was so big. Well, I would love to but, talk to that um, too because you always like to me you seem you have your moments of like, you know, hyper more this like, cause I, I know you cause we've worked so close together and just knowing you as a friend, but you always say, Oh, how I used to be back in the day, you were this way. And like, I like, it's hard to see cause you're not that way now. Well, I like to think that everybody learns from things they do and you learn good and bad things. And there's some things that were attributes that may be successful that I'm not proud of when I look back on them. You know, I was very, impatient. I didn't, I had a tendency to take over if people didn't move fast enough instead of taking the time to explain how to do it. And I didn't suffer, you know, the, 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 the cliche, I didn't suffer fools. I tended to be not very sympathetic to people not getting it. It's like, okay, why aren't you getting this? You know? And I think in some cases that made me a tough guy to work for. And I was able to maintain what I did because I made, I made results. Okay, I always made, I always did what I'm supposed to do, but when I look at it this way, I I think I'm better now that I've learned that I don't have to be involved in everything. I can I can. It's better for me to teach people. It's better for me to you know not be that guy, be someone that people are comfortable, not intimidated by me. I, I mean, I know it sounds weird because you would think I'm more intimidating now because I'm the CEO. But I cast a very big shadow in my old job because, you know, I was this guy, literally, I was kind of like the founder and I was involved in everything. And I just felt like I had to be involved in everything. And I think it's part of youth. But they also like involved you in everything, but it was like kind of like wanting the control. Well, I know. I think I had an old boss that really helped me that initially I didn't really like the guy, but he ended up, he was, came from uh, department stores. And he said, I found the problem at Expo and it's you. (laughs) And I and I was very offended by that because I'm like, man, well, I'm the guy, you know. What do you, how could you possibly tell me? And he, but he basically was saying that everybody comes to you and you make the decision. And he goes, they actually like it. They like the fact that you'll make the decision for them. And you know, and because he goes, and the worst thing about it is you're usually right. And so that's the worst part is it fosters you doing this. 
And because of that, your people aren't growing. And you're going to become the problem because you can't be everywhere. You know, you're developing a system that basically is completely Steve centric and you need to like not do Do you that. find that hard now to let go of that? No, I actually don't. I think I found that if I, if I'm involved at the right points and I put good people in the right situation and I make sure they understand where the pitfalls are, I'm more of a consigliere instead of a dictator. And I'm not saying I was I mean, people that worked for me back then didn't mind. They liked working for me. They then that came out after I left. But there's part of it that I think I'm more effective today. I think I think I'm better as a CEO because I was I was definitely the guy that just wanted to be, you know, behind the curtain. I mean, just I'll, I'll pull all the levers. No one needs to see me. I'm under there, and I'm going to make money. I mean, I mean, every all the vendors knew me, but I was kind of like, you know, uh oh, here comes Steve. You know, you know, you know they were. And now it's more like I've also learned how to become, I think, a better partner with vendors than than before. I think I was I think I was better near the end. But at the beginning, it was more like you'll do it because I said to do it. And, I, you know, part of that was because I was moving at an incredibly fast pace. And, you know, I also as time goes on, you have different I guess you just learn that you don't have to be at that level. You don't have to run at that intensity. I'm still You're very intense. intense. <laughs> I mean, I don't But I'm intense too, so I get it. So do you think you kind of found that piece maybe through when you were in retirement that you kind of learned or you got maybe got to reflect time? Yeah, I mean, mean, it's maybe in some cases I got humbled a little bit. Um, You know, I'd always been like incredible. I've always been, I've always been very successful and I had a couple things that weren't successful and I kind of went, wow, you know, I can't believe this. Something didn't work that I did, you know. Yeah, because you talk about your streak a, of bad luck, right, after. Yeah, I, I, I was always a very lucky person. I used to always thought about that. And then there was this period of like three or four years where I just felt like everything I did was like went bad. And it was really weird for me because my wife says, now you know how everybody else feels. But, you know, I mean, like, it, I mean, I used to be, I used to think I could fix anything with my personal, if I get into it, I can fix it. And I learned that that wasn't true during that period. Like I couldn't make the restaurant casual dining work at that time. And there was nothing I could do that would make well, it's it also like I out mean, of your I control honestly, though. Like you can't. Well, it was, but at the same time, I like, look, you look at COVID. I mean, I, I, I looked at it. Don't, I said, okay, look, how are we going to do business in this area? We're going to do it. Like, and, and uh, to be honest with you, I thought there was going to be like, there's going to be less business. And my attitude was, how do we get it? In, in that case, it was like there was no business. <laughs> Everybody stopped doing it. And at the same time, we're trying to establish a brand that didn't exist on the West Coast. And it was literally impossible. And it's very, it was very hard for me to come to grips with that. You know, I having something not work and having to close it down and say, I couldn't fix this. I couldn't make it work. That was very humbling for me. And uh you know, and then, and then I did something else that didn't work as well either, you know, before I came here. And it was, it wasn't because I wasn't, I mean, the, the good news was it wasn't because I kind of had become like an. They weren't the right things, that. right? They, just, they weren't yeah. the right things. And they, and they also, weren't, it wasn't, it just wasn't the right time. You know, so, I mean, this is the right time and I think I'm in the right position. And, you know, I mean, I, I jokingly say sometimes people always ask me, is what, we know, where, you know, you, you're going to be here, right? You know, sometimes people ask me that and I go, yeah, I'm not going anywhere. I mean, look, I'm 58. 
this is this is the probably my last big hurrah, you know. But I, I plan on being here for a while, and then you know one day I'll just disappear. I'll just melt into the ground because it will be like you know it won't be it won't be needed to be fixed or created or it'll be like a different phase, and I may not be necessarily the right guy at that time. And I'll become that guy on the board that ruins everybody's day. Well, and I can see your the pattern like of hearing this whole conversation of like like you say you like to take things and fix them to make them like you like to fix or find a solution. And I, I think too, even like when we deal with our vendors, if things are kind of like stuck or there isn't like an agreement um, that we can come to, you're like, there's always a way and there's always a solution and we're partners and we'll figure it out. And I think in my beginning days working with you and being able to sit in countless of meetings with you, I just love your negotiation skills. And I think people always always comment on your negotiation because you always do try to find a win-win for both parties. And I, and you always taught me that too, is just trying to find something for them to win and that we can win at as well. Part of that is I think that I, if you think about it, we really need them to be partners. We need them to, to commit resources. We need them to be here next year. I mean, if you beat someone to death and squeeze everything, anyway, I mean, yeah, I could squeeze more, but if I do that, it's like, why do they want to be partners with me? Why do they want to invest? Why do they want to give us displays? Why do they want to invest in new stores? They, they're not going to want to do that because we're not a good channel. So we, it doesn't mean I'm Father Christmas, but at the same time, we need to find out what it is that they need. What do they want? And it's not always sales. Sometimes it's, I want to be positioned a certain way, or I need to be, you give me credibility in the market. And, if, and you, you've heard me say many times, I'll go, this is what they want. And you're, and you know, I know sometimes you look at me kind of weird. I go, no, this is what they want. And you go, well, how do you know? Well, I decided I just putting myself in their position. And the only frustration I usually get into is when I'm going, I, these people are like driving me nuts. They should want this. And they don't, they, they're too bureaucratic to realize they well, want Well, I love this. it too, because now businesses, like, especially through the transition, like I, in being in meetings, people like, or how are you doing it? I think they try to take what you're doing so they can apply it to their business. Cause I think they're just kind of blown away of what you have created and just even. Well, but like I said, it's, it's, it's a whole bunch of things though. It's not like some magic. No, I know. Thing. Well, I also too, because of the state, like, you know, had Perch had been, across the country, narrowed down to just California, and then now growing it to where we're growing again, and just seeing like the vendors and people seeing that expansion decrease. And then now the expansion again, they're like, what's going on, you know, because we're actually like, healthy and moving. Well, I think I think the thing they're happy about, I think they're happy about is, you know, this is a profitable expansion. And that's really important. You know, you, you know, you know, doing something just to expand and just to do things to be sexy is not it's not, it's not long-term. I mean, it's, 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 you know, it's transient and uh, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in building something that has a good foundation. You know, it's the old thing, you know, you build a good foundation, then you can build on it. If you don't build the foundation, it's going to fall over. And that's kind of what happened with Perch when they expanded was the foundation wasn't ready for what they put on top of it. And it collapsed. And, you know, the good news was the customers love it. The vendors want it. And we have really good people working for us. And, you know, with all those things, it didn't take that much for us to get better. I mean, for me, it was a lot easier than it could have been. I mean, if much more difficult when, if, you know, number one, if the customers don't like you, then you're, it's really tough. But if you're, if you don't have good employees, how do you get it to work? 
And if your vendors don't want you to, you know, if they, if they think you're a bad, this is a bad channel, but we, we did, we had those things. It was just figuring out how to do it in a way that was profitable and a, and a, you know, and, you know, it's, I mean, I'm always, you've heard me say the statement many times. I go, look, there's no doubt that Perch is very sexy. It's got a lot of sex appeal. It's very, you know, sizzle, sizzle, sizzle. Okay. We just need a little more steak. And now we got the steak with the sizzle and that's what really makes everything work. I know we've been talking a long time and I just want to talk to you because another thing that I always hear that when you talk to vendors is the employees and the people that we have working, you call them like diamonds in the rough. And I love that because I think too with you and like your course that you went through, you don't really look for just the typical person that might fit this job or they have this experience and they have this amazing resume, but you really like can see through things to where somebody. I, I call it capacity. I hire based on capacity more than I do for skill. Now that doesn't mean like there's certain jobs, you know, you have to have the skills to do it. I mean, you can't hire someone to be your controller and not have them have accounting background. Cause, but I have found that if you hire somebody that you think has a lot of capacity to do more stuff in the future, then you have resources when you grow, because I'm planning on growing. I mean, I was planning on growing. So you want those. You know, what's interesting, though, and this is what's what we're, we're starting to transition this way, is when you're very small or you're at a certain size, you have a lot of people that I call Swiss Army Knives. And that means they can do like seven different jobs. And and those are very, those people are really valuable to you because you cannot have um, seven people. You need one. What's happening now is because we're growing, we ha- we're having to start to have people become more focused in an area and, and give up, let's say, five of those functions, concentrate on two. But now they need to be able to like handle extra people working for them and more volume and all this other stuff. And so What's the challenge for us and the challenge for me is how do I adapt those people that were really, really, really good as Swiss Army knives? Now make them really, really good in their new role, which is maybe more narrowly defined, but a bigger job. And and make them not feel like they're giving something up because you're saying, no, no, I don't want you to do these other four things anymore. I want you to do these two, but these two things are a much bigger deal. And I need you to I need you to focus. And then for that matter, it's also like saying there's real advantage in taking somebody who understands perch and understands the way we do business and understands our culture and using them in a different position. That's a big advantage because they know how to navigate the company. Where if you bring somebody in that hasn't done that, they have to learn us while they're figuring out how to have an impact. And so I love to be able to promote from within and, you know, we can't promote everybody from within because we're just growing too fast, but yeah, that's part of my challenge. I mean, I, I, I want to make sure we, we have a bench for managers and directors and, you know, how do we start to develop people internally and, and, you know, at the same time, well, we're doubling in size. So, you know, these are a lot, there's a lot of balls in the air, but that's, you know, this is your favorite part. This is your favorite part. I would be lying. Yeah, I would be lying if I said I don't like it because I actually like it. I, I don't like being going, what am I going to do today? I mean, that's not my nature. I like having 14 pies flying at my head 
and figuring out how not to get hit. And so my next thing is I want to ask you is what is your legacy that you want to leave? I mean, I will say that when they closed Expo down, it was very, there was, I mean, I'm not a depressed person, as you know, I, I just don't, I'm not wired that way, but it really did. I mean, it, it bothered me because I thought of all these people whose jobs and careers and, <clears throat> and all these partners that I had invest and, and it was frustrating because I kind of went, look, I'm a retailer. Okay. And then I left this, at least I could say I created something that created all these jobs. So I guess if I had a legacy to leave, I'd, I'd like, you know, people to, to say I had a positive impact on them. Not that I created a, you know, a really cool store where rich people buy stuff or, you know, people that, you know, yeah, that's, that's great. I'm more into like, I create all these jobs and careers and I help people that maybe didn't know they could do something, do it. And I mean, I'm a challenging guy. I mean, I, I know that. I mean, I mean, the running joke is I'm only happy for 10 seconds and then I'm not happy. I mean, that's good and bad. I mean, it, but you know, I, I definitely want to be able to, to be the guy who shows up and goes, Hey, you know, I mean that I helped that person start and I did this and I get a kick out of that. I mean, I'm going to get a much bigger kick out of that than one day looking at it and going, wow, I created a, a business that's, you know, $4 billion and does this much revenue. I mean, I mean, yeah, you know, that could go away. But the people that I train and the people I help develop, they'll go on and other. I know that's what Bernie and Arthur, Bernie and Arthur can, can go up to whatever you believe in the pearly gates, whatever. And they know that they created thousands and thousands of careers. I can sincerely say that that is like legit for you. And it's because I, you know, I have other examples of you walking away from money. So I know it's not about the money. And I think, I think that is actually authentically true for you. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm not, you <laughs> no, know, I, <laughs> not, I mean, I mean, that sounds corny. I mean, I, I, I mean, I, and as you said, I like, I, I do like nice wine. I do There's like nothing nice wrong meals. with I that. Like you know, it's um, I, at the same time though, I've been tested and there are lines I will not cross for personal gain and I just won't do it. And, and it doesn't mean that I'm like some sort of, you know, it just, I just am not willing to, compromise. I'm probably a very, have, have, have much more solid boundaries than people would think I do. I, I mean, like, I mean, if I give you my word, that's my word. And I, I mean, I know that's used a lot, but you know that, I mean, I, I'm like, look, Hey, I'm a big boy. If I make a bad decision, I'll still stand by it and I'll stand by my people. Um, if they, if they make a bad decision, that's my own problem. I'll deal with them separately. But you can rely on the fact that if Stephanie makes a commitment to a vendor, I will stand behind that commitment because I empowered her to make those decisions. I will never come back and say, oh, I don't agree with what she said. I'm not doing that. That to me, <clears throat> I personally think there's no way you can have any credibility in business if that's the way you run your company. And there's a lot of companies I do business with where, you know, their people are not empowered. And I, you know, you've seen me do this many times where I'm going, okay. Are, if you're not the decision maker, then I don't, I like you, but I need the person who can make the decision because I, I'm here and the people that are, my people can make decisions. So I expect the same respect. I, I think companies that I think have got a challenge are the ones that think they have to control everything like this. And I have been there, done that. And I can tell you, it's not effective. It's just not. And so I get, I mean, I, I can't, I mean, I can throw a brick on a glass house because I, 
I know for a fact that I was that way and I was successful for a period of time that way. And then I wasn't. Yeah. Well, I am so grateful to you, as you know, and I say you're my best boss, my favorite boss and best boss ever. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's really big surprise, I end up talking a half an hour longer than you probably have. No, I know. I love it, though. I, and I appreciate it because I do find like I've gotten to hear your stories all throughout the years. That's true. And I there's yeah. so many gems. My work wise. Yeah. My work wise. <laughs> had to listen to you. You're like what my mom does with my dad when he tells the same joke. Yeah. For the 25th. Oh God, he's not going to take this again. You know, I know it's. It is. It is kind of funny that I. I will tell you one last thing that I think is kind of interesting is that I was around. Uh, I know Bernie Marcus and Arthur Blank, and Bernie Marcus is one of the one of the best orators. He just is very. He's the best inspiring. what? One orator, you know, he's able to speak, and he's just mesmerizing. What he does. And, and what's funny is is that after you sit in a lot, because I sat in a lot of his. His, his speeches, he basically was saying the same thing, like really simple, like take care of your people, take care of your customers, provide value, fight bureaucracy. That was it. That was pretty much every, every was, and that was pretty much it. Okay. And, but he said it differently every time. And he made it interesting every time. So I, I really try to do that. I mean, sometimes it is the same, you know, and if you're working for me and you have to, you know, people go, well, Steve, can you explain what's going on with Perch? And it's like, I can imagine that having to sit in there and listen to me, because I sometimes get to the point, I'm like, oh my God, I don't even, do it. I don't even want to do it myself. Yeah, I love it you because know? I actually know like what you're trying to achieve. And so I also know, like, again, for me, when I came in, I'm like, I just want to absorb it all. I want to understand your brain. I want to think, because you do have this way, and I always consider myself to be an out of the box thinker, but you just have this out of the box way of thinking. And then, like I said, making it work for people without force. And you're just like, Hey, this is my business. This is your business. If this doesn't work for you, or if this is what you want, this doesn't work for me. And you have like this confidence. So I just really wanted to like get that point across. Cause I, you have so much, um, like, again, your mind just kind well, of blows I me mean, away. I do, think, I do think the mistake most people make is that I, and I, you've heard me say this to you before is they come in with their agenda and they have it all written down. Here's my third I mean, you're, and you're a little bit like this. This is your nature. You, you know, you have, you're very organized <laughs> and, and I can be frustrating for people sometimes because I'll, I'll come in with this agenda of like 14 things we're going to do. And I'll go and I'll go off on some, just where the hell is he going? And <laughs> a lot of it's because I'm reading the room and I'm reading the, the acceptance of what I'm saying. And in some cases I'm going, oh, that agenda just doesn't work. They're not buying what we're selling and then I'll change. It. And I'm, I, that's probably, I mean, I do think it's a strength that I adapt the meeting to the reception. Oh yeah. And I, and, and I know I've been in meetings where it was like super tense and I'm like, Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. And then all of a sudden like something just shifts in the meeting. And I, like, I think, and you don't budge, you're not like mean or forceful or like dictating anything, which I guess too, in my head, when I thought of like working for a company and dealing with a CEO, and this is probably just what I perceived it, they're going to be this way or their power and force and their way, the highway, like it's not, you know. Well, you're much better off. You're much better off if you save those, those moments when you do, 
when you do use the, so to speak, the power, you use it very selectively. You're much better off if you can convince people that your position or your idea is a smart way to do it. So I always have logicizing them to death, which I know is not a word. You know, I just use logic and I say, well, this is what's in it for you. And this is what's in it for us. And this is why I think you should do it. And it's, it's much better if you can get them to, to do that than it is to cram it down their throat. And again, maybe that's because I found that I just did much better with vendors when I was at Expo when you got them to want to do it. Than making yeah it for anybody right nobody wants to be forced to do anything yeah, I mean I, I just think I think that's one of the biggest mistakes is people say they're great negotiators because they get a deal and I'm like you got, you got the deal because you have the biggest pencil in the world okay you got the deal because you're buying for Home Depot you didn't get it because you cut a really good deal now if you could get them to do it without beating them to death that's much more impressive to me. Then that. And that's what so, I was trying anyway. to get across is like, you know, I, I yeah. find that like you have this confidence and I w- like wish we went more into that or how that adapted. But, we, you know, like hopefully that came across like there's. Well, next time if you have to have a cocktail, if you don't talk to me at noon, I'll, I'll do a we cocktail. Were, we were going to do happy hour. I thought we were going to do happy hour. But yeah, next time we'll but do You were going to have a drink. You were going to pretend to have no, a drink. No, I'd have a mocktail. <laughs> Yeah, so for me to have a cocktail at one o'clock in the afternoon is a little bit, even much for me. So, well, thank you so much for coming on. I know it's your weekend and you like to wind down on the weekend. So, thank sure you. My so wife much. has been listening to me upstairs going, Oh, God, oh gosh, I know. <laughs> oh, gosh, here he goes again. <laughs> yeah, she'll, she'll be, God, she's gonna have to edit that down for like four hours. <laughs> Cut out a big chunk. No, yeah, thank yeah, you so yeah. much. All right. Thank you for listening. My hope is that this conversation has inspired you with a new awareness and has uncovered some beauty and wisdom within you. If you have enjoyed what you heard today, please feel free to share it with a friend and please subscribe, rate, and review it on your favorite podcast player. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback for me, please feel free to reach me at stephanie.brownyard at gmail.com. Talk to you soon.